people who would benefit most from learning about finance and money management are the people getting the worst resources, whereas the people who already have money are the ones who are able to afford and have access to more help. Welcome to the Picture of Wealth, a podcast all about living more of your life now, yet being responsible for your future. Lifestyle experimenter, wealth scientist, and financial coach Dustin Service shares life hacks, wealth tips, and interviews successful entrepreneurs on how they're thriving in happiness, purpose, and prosperity. Frankie, yes, you can relax. Uh, your computer's <laughs> going to be fine. Uh, this episode is uh, episode number four with uh, Frankie and D. And once again, I have no idea where you're going to take this conversation, but I am ready. I've stretched. I'm, uh, I'm feeling good. So how are you doing today? I'm feeling pretty good too. Thanks for having me back. Did you stretch before this podcast? Yeah, I stretched. I cracked my knuckle. Oh yeah, Christ. <laughs> okay. Well, you're not nervous anymore, so that's not a nervous thing. So it's just a chronic knuckle cracking. So <laughs> where are we going to go today in the world of finance trends, wealth? All right. So I wanted to start off uh, south of the border. Um, as Canadians, I think we're often, maybe we're a little tired of how often we're inundated with legal and political news from the States. Um, but I, yeah, (laughs) I came across something this week that interested me and I wanted to bring it up with you. It's not as flashy as we're used to hearing about, but it is a piece of political news from several states. Uh, across the U.S. that are mandating financial literacy education in high schools. So what this means is in order to graduate high school in states like, I believe, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, you'll have to look it up yourself if you (laughs) want to be 100% sure. But students, so students will have to take a financial literacy class as part of their high school education. And un- another, unlike a lot of news we hear from the states, uh, it's incredibly popular on both sides of the aisle. I think one survey I read these courses have 88% popular support. And these bills are backed by both Republicans and Democrats. So. But I also want to add one of the issues they're bringing up is how to implement a financial literacy program because the teachers themselves don't have the necessary financial literacy skills or just financial literacy to teach a course on it. So here in Canada, um, it's like the state's high school curriculum is mandated province by province. For me, I thought a lot this week about my what I learned I went to high school in Alberta I don't know if you went to high school in BC BC I did go to high school yeah (laughs) BC though so it's good we're gonna get two two provincial so I was I wanted to hear uh like broadly if the idea of like a mandated financial literacy program across public schools what is something that excites you? What What are your thoughts on that? And then what your early education in terms of finances, money management was like? Oh, this is great. This is, I'm, I'm excited and the news should hire you for finding positive news. And right? <laughs> why, why wouldn't this be a benefit? And I, for anyone that's in opposition of it, I would be very interested to hear their views on why it shouldn't be a push. And maybe it's, well, then something's going to have to go and what would have to go. And that is probably for a different podcast or for beers. And, and we can talk about it. In private. But <laughs> well, I, same- I will add, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just because on that point, the two oppositions that I came across online, one, I think like, and we're talking about this is 10, 12% of people. Or uh, the one thing was people who believed uh, money should be talked about in the home and that it was the parents' responsibility to teach about money. Mm. And two, um, concern over 
I mean, and this is a huge concern, but concern over what these classes would would teach and like what the what the framework would be, like where the information was coming from. But I mean, presumably they would give a lot of thought into that, like thought to that. And that, I mean, that's a huge question. So anyways, just to clarify what the opposition well, I encountered. OK, so, yes, you can sense that I'm I'm uh, I'm rocking in my chair. I'm so excited about this topic. <laughs> And having two children in class uh, or yeah. in in school, it it is uh, yes, it's paramount. It is something that we are all faced with. And uh, you know, a prime example is I get a call yesterday from a lady who uh, phones me says, "I'm looking at your website. I want to know if I'm the right client for you." Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we talk about things, and she goes, "Well, I'm I, I'm not. I feel like I'm not a fit." your firm and I said it's probably not a fit because the fees that I'm going to charge are going to be too high for your net worth and it's it's going to be I just wouldn't it's not right mm-hmm. so she said well what do you think I should do and I said well uh you're about to retire your best bet is a lot of financial firms the custom ones aren't going to take your account just based on like the size of it being small but she has legit questions she mm-hmm. has legit Problems that that probably could be solved, one might argue herself with a bit of googling, but they're advanced enough that it's not basic. So yeah. you know where does she go? And uh, you know this person's sixty some years old, and so if you go back to you know when you're in school, you're at the most influential time in your life, and there are things around money and wealth and certain traits or certain behaviors that we all interact with every day for the, you know, 90%, 99% of population uh, work, or sorry, I don't know what the status, a big population works, they make money, they need money to live, that's spending. And the difference between those two things is what's left over. Right. And that's a massive amount of, of topic to cover there, but that's basic framework for most of society. So we did not, we got taught math, which I guess, you know, for some people, uh, and, and a lot of people I see it is common in, uh, in couples. One person is very interested in finances. The other one isn't. Well, can mm-hmm. you think of a more explosive scenario brewing when one person isn't interested in the finances? One is, one doesn't understand what the spending is. One does. One just knows their visa gets paid off somehow at the end of the month. That when financial decisions are needing to be made, they're very difficult. Or they, there could be friction there, which causes stress, which you know I'm a happiness advocate and a wellness person that that's not serving anybody. So if we all had a baseline understanding, which leads into your comments about what the opposition would say of, well, what, what would we teach them? Well, just think of basic life. Teach people mm-hmm. in money, out money, coming in, going out. Teach people how to add more value in their careers. And that doesn't mean mm-hmm. to try and make more money, but it's it does at a certain point, once your income does get above a little bit, make your life a little easier. Now, I'm not saying everyone needs to make six figures and that's the end all answer because it's not. But there is a, a big difference from making minimum wage and thinking, you know, this is sort of my ceiling to mm-hmm. you know, maybe you're making $35 an hour. And where, where does that translate into how that affects my life? Right. And if people aren't kind of groomed that way, or if they come from maybe broken home or, or homes that, you know, aren't uh, are built around financial literacy or... Or, or mismanaged because a lot of people grow up maybe in a house where they are living right on the thread of their means or a little bit above. So they see their parents living this amazing life. And then all of a sudden, I'll give you a story. So there's a client who's, uh, who's about 50, their parents are in their eighties and they live yeah. a couple hours away in, in BC here from us in Kelowna. So remote part of town and, and all through life, you know, these parents were telling their child, you know, those people are quite wealthy. And now since those people aren't working, these friends of this older couple, they, you know, my client is saying, mom and dad, they live in a trailer park. They might've had the cars and had all the stuff, but 
it there's a disconnect there with yeah. the, the audio doesn't meet the visual. So if you grew up in a house where your expectation of like, I, you know, we go to fancy restaurants, we go, we drive fancy cars and you're a kid and you don't really put two and two together that your parents were literally two paychecks away from crumpling the whole family. That's your expectation when you come out of, out of school, maybe university, and you've got a major stress because you, you, the pressure you put on yourself is enormous. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there's, you know, I hope you, you tee me up here for another good question like that one, because I would be <laughs> all over um, supporting, contributing, uh, and helping these children at a, a very influential time in their life get educated around money. And I think it, you know, it'd be hard to argue that if they were more financially uh, put together or educated, that that wouldn't create more economic value for the future, which spins off more taxes, which right. makes us a more innovative society, which hires more people. Um, right. I I agree. I was excited uh, to read about that. Um, and I, I mean, I find it like you're just your example of the woman on the verge of retirement who called you and and you just said, well, where does she go? Like, is there somewhere she can go? Well, to, to be honest, uh, and all the, if any bank people are listening, you're going to hate me for this, but I sent her to the bank because uh, she banks with a major Canadian institution and that bank has staff that yes, you know, and, and this, this is common financial advisors in the bank, unless you're at the higher level tiers turn over a lot. So you have a uh-huh. certain person at the bank not the teller, but the person behind the wall, the first wall. And it's like, okay, they help you set up a GIC and maybe they sell you some mutual funds, but they turn over every year, every two, you get that email bounce back. No, this person's no longer here, but it doesn't mean that their products aren't at least um, there's, there is some good nuggets in there. And those people, I believe uh, have do, do have good intentions. They do have sales targets. They do yeah. have to make a certain number of calls. So yes, there's a sales element to them. And that's what this lady's objection was and why she came to my site. Cause she said the people at the bank are very salesy. I said, well, maybe that's not all experience, but that's your experience. But they, if you go into that bank meeting expecting that the person's probably going to change, but you at least ha- get them to help you figure out your risk tolerance. Like what kind of investor are you? Are you a risky person or not a risky person? They have the tools to figure that out and they can appropriately, you know, figure out what investment might be good for you. And that, then if you take that and go to like a fee for service planner, when you're already set up, mm-hmm. it will be a lot cheaper than having someone charge you 200, 250 an hour to figure out those questions. You might as well get it done for free. It'll be close to right. And then bring that to a fee for service person. And then maybe you get further down the road. But um, I think there could be an opportunity building for some firm and maybe there is, and, and, and I just haven't seen it yet, but like that middle market, how do you efficiently service that person? Index funds claim to do it, you know, robo advice or the computer models that do index investing is, is one touted solution, but one might argue that the you know personal face-to-face relationship with somebody local yeah. Is not there. So you have this, you, you have a real, like you got to jump off that cliff to go to a robo advisor where you've got an online computer model, which I have some of my own money in one and it, it works, but I don't expect anyone to call me with like, Hey, you know what? You should really be topping up your RSP or you should be really doing that. It's literally a computer model that invests in index funds and is just very passive. The fees are a little bit lower, but then your service is also lower. So that's, you send an email to someone, they don't even have a phone number and you hope the chat bot gets back to you. So if that's not the 62 year old person that, that a, a listener is, uh, I think that the bank, uh, or that, you know, we're trying to do like a, um, like medication when you already have a headache, well, what could we do right. before? And it starts with being younger to not get the headache. And that's, it's this financial literacy piece. Yeah, it reminds me of um, when I went to, so I went to grad school in the States and uh, it was 
like kind of like a fancy program as part of our uh, tuition. If we we got um, our tuition paid for and we got a small stipend. But part of the deal was that we had to teach a freshman writing course. And it was like the most basic writing course that the university offered. And generally, and generally these were students who came from like middle upper class uh, families. So you could get you would make the assumption that they're coming from good private public schools, if not private schools. Um, but these are kids, you had the option of testing out of the freshman class if your writing skills were above a certain level. So most students did. And the students who took the class had pretty significant issues, like not understanding like what a complete sentence was, not like no understanding of punctuation, of like how paragraphs worked, like those are pretty big issues. And the people assigned to teach them were me, the graduate student. We were given a week of training. It was basically like classroom management exercises, like how to engage people in conversation. And it was and it was something we talked about a lot that the students who have most need are met <laughs> Are given the teachers who have the least experience yeah. and the le- the lowest capacity of, of you know the worst teachers. We were we really weren't good, and I'm I really felt bad for my students. And I see a parallel here, like the people who could potentially who would benefit most from learning about finance and and money management are the people getting the worst resources, whereas the people who already have money are the ones who are able to afford and have access to more help. And I think mm. it just, it kind of is creating a vicious cycle. Yeah. Well, I, I think in any person with investing money, there's, you know, I, one of my designations, there's a whole section on cognitive bias, <clears throat> meaning your views and your experiences stack up and create these biases that you have towards things. Some people will say, Bitcoin's the best thing because blah, 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 based on their experience. Some people say real estate is the only investment based on, you know, if you unpack that person's like their parents and their grandparents, they all invest in real estate, hated the stock market and it worked. And so right. that doesn't mean that that is the best for every person. It just means for those people, it worked. And I think when you have a teacher, especially, you know, and teachers are very influential on people that those biases, you know, maybe this is what the opposition is considering would be would be hard that the, the teacher's bias might leak into the, the classroom. And so how do you even Steven every teacher so that it's equal? And I don't think you could. And I don't think that, again, my you know, child's you know, kindergarten teacher is great from what I see. Is there a better one? I have no idea. Uh, is, is my child you know, trusting that person and, and engaging and, and hitting all the requirements of kindergarten? Yes. So is she doing her job? Yes. Uh, is she pleasant human? Yes. So I think she, they could do that with the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Hope she does. Um, yeah. Maybe she'll, she'll advocate for teaching uh, kindergarten finance, but uh, yeah. So that, I think that, you know, what are the topics that they should teach? Well, they should teach, you know, exactly the same way that we teach wealthy families, how to get organized. At the bottom of the, you know, we have a pyramid. The base of your foundation on your house is made of cement. Why? Because it's strong and lasts a long time. It provides a great foundation. So at the bottom of a pyramid, envision that layer is your plan. And it, it's like, well, what is a financial plan? It could be just a conversation. Someone listening to this podcast and dreaming about what they actually want to do in life, we could call that a plan. It's like, this is where I want to go. Okay, well, what's the plan? Well, uh, I want to, I want to, I want to retire. I want to invest in a piece of real estate in three years. I want to buy a bigger house. Okay. Now we have a goal. So the next layer up in the pyramid is risk management. And in the the first seven or 12 episodes of this podcast, I laid out all these, I think it's seven steps to being essentially uh, financially resilient. And I did it during COVID. And so it was a very, it's like, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back all the fancy, never mind your neighbor who tripled his money on some stock. Just think about you and how do we get financially organized? 
Bottom of the pyramid is the plan. Next layer up is risk management. So what is going to get in the way of me getting to my plan? Well, in that risk management bucket, it's like, what if I get sick? What if I get disabled and I have no income? That obviously is going to impact me getting to my plan. And after we've sort of got the risk managed, then the next layer up is, is where you sort of put on the gas, you know, put on the acceleration. And that's where you start looking at uh, my income. Can I increase my income in the most easy way possible? Can I save? Can I invest? What do I invest in? And then the top of the pyramid is, is, is estate planning or preservation uh, and passing it on to the next generation, which includes money, you know, passing on something to the next generation. But it doesn't have to be money. It could be skills. It could be mm. tools. It could be uh, an asset. You know, I, one of my clients uh, has like mobile, um, without, mobile unit on a trailer that they take somewhere. They rent it out for a couple of days, make some money, and then they yeah. bring the trailer back to their house. And so it's a pretty simple business model and people need what it is. So to pass that on to kids, if you're just like, hey, pull this lever, put this in here. Do that. And at the end of the day, you make two grand. Oh, okay. And it costs you 500 in diesel to run this thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I made 1500 and it was 10 hours. That's pretty good. So like that, you know, that's the top of the pyramid. So you think plan, risk management, accumulation, preservation, and, and passing it on. And so if, if they took those tools, you know, maybe that's the answer right there. Maybe I should be lobbying to the, the school board trustees to, to implement this program. Uh, so, you know, so if it's maybe it's maybe you bring the teachers up to speed, maybe you embed in one district, you know, a person that goes to each school and, and teaches it and who's educated. And that might be a solution. Uh, yeah, I'd really love if any listeners have any comments, uh, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Or if you have a student in a school who is doing a great job, then uh, I'd love to know what school that is and, and get that a little more information. Yeah, I asked, my mom is a high school teacher in Edmonton. And I, I just asked her, like, do they teach any sort of like financial literacy or money management course? And she basically said, yes, but it sucks. It, it's which? Oh, I said, yes, but it sucks. Oh, it sucks. Yeah, you cut out there <laughs> yeah. for a sec, right at the punchline. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I guess, you, you know, and, and that's someone's interpretation of it. Um, I, I'm sure that, like, when I was, you know, if I was, if I was in high school 23 years ago, uh, it was more on career. Like, I don't remember a money course. I remember a, what kind of career do you want to be? And, you know, mine was a, a firefighter in the army, <laughs> which I, I didn't become. Uh, and the other one was, was a, a forester because I thought, oh, this could be so great. I'm going to have a, a chocolate lab dog and drive around the forest and look at stuff. But neither Aww. of those came to fruition. Um, <laughs> So that, you know, kind of has a, has a career path, which I really enjoyed those classes. But, but again, I, I, I've, I have been in the school district here and helped a couple of teachers with entrepreneurship programs where um, there's junior achievements program. And there was another, there's, there is, I know, a, a grade 12 course called entrepreneurship. And the students, uh, there's a model they use on the computer and they run this factory. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so they have to do marketing and they got to spend some money and they got to, you know, make profit. And then the model actually has, you know, hurricane, whatever comes in and knocks out the factory for a certain amount of time. And so they have to like deal with that. And that, that was pretty cool. Cause you do get to see how a business is run. Uh, but still that's a business, you know, that's a layer up from right. basic finance, financial management. Right. I like I remember in in Alberta and they still have the same course. I'm like I'm sure it's been updated, but when, so when I went to high school, I guess like 10 or more years ago, I took this it's called career and life management. Okay. And they actually interestingly enough tying into our episode last week, they they combined sex ed in this class with um heavy duty. So, I guess that falls under like life management right, and then right. like 
the career management, like they basically teach you like this is a resume. And then they're like, one day you might like want to rent an apartment. Like this is what rent is. Ah. And like you should have a budget. And they like explain like the concept of a budget. Yeah, the the piece that like a budget is good. I think more on sort of checking it. Like when you're young, you don't really think about values. Like you have them. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about values in your background. I'm talking about values in your head of like what you value in life. And as you get older, you you look at like when we talk to people, we'll say, um, you know, what are your goals? And people will give us the surface stuff. Like I want to buy a boat or I want to buy, you know, something. It always is buying something. But then it's like, well, like, what is that going to give you? Well, you know, it's going to give us, you know, we're going to be living that lifestyle. Okay. But when you really unpack it, you know, you get down to things like, well, my parents like worked so hard that we always envied the neighbor who had a boat or, you know, we never got to do that or the opposite of we had a boat as a family. It was so much fun. And then you, you you go, it's like, well, that time together made the family stronger. And so that, you know, becomes a value is like time together as a family. So now we're talking about a boat, but really, you know, they love skiing. And so when we talk about investing and, you know, this isn't a, you should buy or sell your rec property right now, disclosure. But when people are, are saying, you know, hey, our, our, we, we saw the ski condo for sale. It, like, is that a good investment? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Talk to a realtor and see if it's a good buy. But they might pump the brakes on that because they've got this belief that they shouldn't have that yet at this age. Or they, sh- they you know, that's something you buy in retirement. Mm-hmm. Where if you're aware of the boat scenario, or if you've got somebody that's kind of mining out these, these traits that you have, you could say, well, actually that, that might give you what your goal is, which is like more time with the family, more time to bond. And, and so, yeah, like even if the value of that condo stayed the same for 10 years and you, you know, I say you didn't make this great investment, but you've got all these weekends to use it and you can afford it and you don't need to rent it out. then maybe that is a good investment and then you can sell that and you know use that money for something else in the future cool. so i think i think really at a young age helping people figure out what they actually want or any age right. is very important and having either a um a person or a way to check in and po- i think podcasts do that nowadays for people but podcasts i don't think are every day that every person is listening to podcasts. It's just a certain group of people that enjoy this kind of media. Yeah. So how do you get that info to that person? Is it the employer? Is it the school? Um, friend group? Government? You know, it's, it needs to be mm-hmm. broadcast out sooner. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess I'm just curious, why didn't you become a firefighter? So back in my young, naive uh, self, I wanted to drive, like I've always loved the outdoors, the bush, you know, it was so great. Drive around in a pickup truck. I did some, uh, like I did when I was 16, I was a tree faller for on weekends and I worked at a mill and, uh, you know, so being in the forest was was normal, quadding, shooting, all that stuff. But uh, it it was more like, I, I won't be able to golf at you know, 10 a.m. on a Tuesday if I'm in the middle of the forest. And and I, I don't play that much golf anymore, but at the time when I was young, I played a lot of golf. And, uh, you know, so being a firefighter, you do get four days on, four days off. Uh, but to be tr- super truthful, I, I wanted a job that was in sales. I wanted a job that uh, if it wasn't in sales, I would work overtime and I could make a lot of money. I'll just be okay. super truthful. So I went into yeah. engineering, actually, like civil engineering. I uh, got a diploma in that and went to the oil patch because back way back when you, as a two and a half year graduate of a diploma, you actually made more in Alberta than a full-blown engineer in BC. So yeah. less school, more money. Uh, we'd work 80, 85 hours a week, all the overtime, uh, and it was making money. But at the same time, 
I came to the realization that uh, I could figure out we some days we could clock almost like 17 hours uh, of time based on the amount of work you did. So I could figure it out that if I actually worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I knew what the actual max max I could possibly make was. And I I wasn't satisfied with that. So what, you know, any smart kid, uh, I wanted to drive a Ferrari and be a stockbroker. And so I quit that and moved to Kelowna and went into finance and my first year, you know, I go from the oil patch making six figures at 23 to making like 15,000 my first year as a financial advisor, which was a rude, rude awakening. And that was like, oh, five, oh, six real estate was mm-hmm. blazing. And then oh, eight happened. So the first eight years of my financial advisor existence was slow. Uh, so that's full circle. Um, and and now I, I I see my career as much different, obviously, 20 years later than you know, the rewards of my job now are working with people, which is great. That's always something that's been important to me. And um, you know, seeing them achieve financial results and then experimenting in my own life. Mm-hmm. You know, having the the life that we have now, it's I'm super grateful that we can, you know, I can invest in things and try them and then tell clients about them or warn them, uh, if it, you know, isn't, isn't very good. So there's, there's always projects on the go. I mean, I'm interested like, I don't, again, I don't know. I think you're the first, well, one of my landlords was actually a, a wealth management advisor, but you're the first, <laughs> um, you're, you're the first person I really know who, who does this kind of work. And it seems like you, you do kind of have like an unorthodox approach and, and philosophy that focuses more on like on lifestyle and what, what you just described as, as on values over like money in the bank. Do you think that that, that comes from maybe like the initial like slow start that you had? I think it comes from work and I think it maybe comes from getting older, <laughs> maybe having children. Um, it definitely was not who I was at the start. You know, the end all be all was, you know, make money, survive, you know, was kind of the thing. And, and then you set certain goals. And then when you get to them, it's actually quite scary because uh, then you've got to retool. And, you know, you thought that all of a sudden, you know, back 20 years ago, if your income was ever a certain amount, then you know, obviously the life would, would just be so easy. And, and right. it's not. Um, and it, you realize it's not about the money. It's, it, it's about learning. It's about having purpose. It's about engagement in your craft. And uh, I think that, you know, again, for, you know, if you were older and thinking about retiring and, and selling your company, you're 60 years old, that's probably what that person goes through is just like, I've, I've seen this. I just, I'm done. I'm ready for a new chapter. And, uh, and so again, for, for, for me, I do get to live through a number of clients and see you know, businesses that I worked with 11 years ago, you know, have gone from making one, 2 million a year to making 25, 30 million. Uh, you know, that's, you get to, you get to be, that feels good. That feels engaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, for my, as a, I got into this business cause I was naturally curious about it. And I thought it would be a, a great survival skill. Uh, you know, my first mutual fund investment was with my mom. 18 years old, I put in a thousand dollars within a couple months. It went down to like 910. I panicked. I called the guy. I took it all out. <laughs> so, you know, that was like my first, you know, thing. I thought there's got, I want to understand this better. And yeah. we, we still do that. Um, you know, it looks different. We still get approached to invest in certain things that I'm, I'm not talking big time. I'm talking just small things, but you learn a lot. You meet a lot of people. There's a certain mm-hmm. culture, you know, around people who are naturally curious about it that, you know, you're doing some investments where it's like, this is a small enough amount in my portfolio that if I lose it all, I'm going to be a little bit mad. But at the same time, I know I'm going to learn uh, people. I did a podcast on an angel investment thing we did a couple of years ago where it's, it was tech firms pitched 30 of us. We all put a little bit of money in. We built a pool of money based on 30 guys putting the same and women putting in the same amount of money. And we gave that. And for that, we got some equity share of the business. And it's cool. Every few months, I get an email about 
what the business is doing. Um, it's, it's again, it's a cool business. It's actually a financial app that schools use to for the teacher to be more uh, transparent and connected to the to the parents. And so there's okay. you know all sorts of things in the in the in the state. I might screw this up, but uh, I I believe that certain schools or certain states provide money every year to the schools in that state for technology betterment, we'll call it. So yeah. there is budget. So you, you can see the scale. You can see how the business would grow. And again, I put that money there. I don't get a statement of what my investment is. I just know that if it goes to zero, okay, well, we tried. If not, I had 30 new contacts that are all like-minded individuals. And so the process was over like about a eight week period, once a week, we would meet and these companies would present, we would vet them down, lower the number, lower the number. And then it came down to like, you know, four contestants for the eighth week uh-huh. did a final pitch. And then we all, you know, put our hands up to vote which one and the one with the most votes got the money. And oh. so over eight weeks, you know, you're, you're pretty connected to these people. You see the questions that they have. You see stereotypes of how people are dressed and what you expect them to, to say. And they might be completely opposite. Some people, non-assuming, you think that they don't know anything from nothing. Mm-hmm. And they're some of the most bright people. So again, humbling. Um, I would say I was a lot more of a listener than a commenter because the group was a little bit older. Uh, and, and there were some young guys who were, who've done some amazing things with business and money. So again, I... I love that process. And I think people need to be open to that, that, you know, the only way to retirement is not mutual funds or stocks. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of different ways that people get there. And so I always talk about a wealth edge. So some people's wealth edge is different than the other person's. You know, I, examples like a realtor who likes owning real estate sees listings come on before everyone else. So their wealth edge is like, you could see a good deal and buy it and buy a duplex or buy, you know, there's always money available for a good deal. So people always say to me, well, I'd love to do something myself, but I don't have the money. Mm-hmm. Well, don't wait till you have the money because it'll take a long time. But if you find something that's a good deal and you can show somebody who has money, you will have more money mm-hmm. coming in. And, and that is a Grant Cardone comment for sure. <laughs> uh, again, he says, you know, for anyone who doesn't know Grant Cardone, he's a bit of a hyperactive go-getter. Uh, well, he's, he's worth lots of money and done a great job with real estate, but he's, you know, he talks about don't buy a rental house to start, try and find a, like a 32 unit apartment building, which up here in Canada is it's, especially in this market, it's almost impossible to make the numbers work because it's so expensive in many, in many major centers or towns. Yeah. You might have to go to, you know, Northern Nunavut or somewhere, which how does that work? Where in the States, you know, there's still pockets of, you know, the, you know, sort of the East central where you're getting, you can still get an eight unit apartment building for a million eight or 2 million where in Canada, you don't get that at all. Or at least right. not in Kelowna. <laughs> no, not in Montreal. We're actually looking to rent an apartment right now. and It sucks. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a common <laughs> thing. It's uh yeah, I, I I wouldn't. I hope you I hope you're able to figure it out, or just hunker in and stay where you're at. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, we think we said. I mean, maybe this is a tangent. You can edit it out, but you do you own rental properties? Uh, not right now. Okay. I have a, a commercial property rental, but so we uh, we saw this place. We liked it. We like paid for the. The application process was to put down a deposit, like a small amount. So we did that, like in the showing with the guy. Um, and it's a small, uh, it's a small building. It's maybe like six apartments. Um, it didn't seem like the guy owned a lot of buildings. It was like he owns this building, and then like he has the company. Um, and he was like, "Okay, like I think this will this will go well." I'm like looking to to get this moving. And we fill out the application with our income and we don't have a super high income, but this is not a super, this is not a really expensive apartment. Like it's comfortably in 
I we felt in our budget and like in the we followed like the third third rule okay. like it's comfortably like under that okay and he has the nerve to text us saying are you sure you want to rent this apartment and i'm quoting you do not make that much money isn't that rude <laughs> would you ever do that uh i i don't <laughs> think so uh it could show his personality maybe it's not someone you want to you know be in in a you know, financial relationship with i know but, but we're ha- best let's do let's do the let's do the third a third a third i'd love to know uh what you so you don't need to tell us numbers but what is the theory so it seems like a common uh, a thing again on i'm no expert but on online that you should not spend more than a third of your annual of your income on rent and I, I also want to say it's becoming like that's kind of like the conventional wisdom, but it's becoming more and more known that in major cities, it's just impossible. Like people who live in, in who rent in New York or rent in Toronto, um, it, it's harder and harder. Like people are spending half their income on their rent because these places just don't exist that you can rent right. cheaply anymore. Um, but we're lucky-ish to live in Montreal. It's not as bad as as Toronto or New York is, are, but it's quickly getting pretty pretty bad in terms of the gentrification in the housing market. Um, there's not a lot of places out there, but uh, yeah, this place was comfortably under a third of our income, so. I didn't see what the problem was. And if we were, and he called our landlord, we're, we've never been late on our rent. We have great credit. We're employed. So. Yeah, I, I guess my, we talked about it earlier, the, where you choose to spend your money that you've got to choose to spend it mm-hmm. is, you know, would you put you know, more like it's more important for you to have that place than have all organic food, you know? Yeah. So, it, yeah. so is, I guess, is that person right or wrong to question you on that? Uh, or sometimes there's people put roadblocks up in life that you just have to just goes in one ear and out the other. And it's like, he has something that we want and we're going to be just fine, pal. And just don't miss payments. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm looking this up uh, just as you're speaking. I do see it now. It's, you know, roots back to the 1930s, uh, specifically the National Housing Act of 1937. And, and it was more uh, created as a public housing to establish guidelines for maximum rents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it actually used to be uh, 20% of income. And then obviously now that's, you know, in 1981, they bumped it up to 30. Um, but I, like in this market, especially there's so much demand. Like I, 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 like, I think you'd almost be higher than that. It says that, yeah. you know, mortgage payment, uh, you know, your combined income is probably more like 43% is like a, a max threshold. So, yeah. um, you know, he, he doesn't know that, that maybe you, you still save money every month, even with your rent at that level, because you manage your bare ass minimum expenses better than the average person. So I say, if you like the place and you're, you know, believe that you can, you know, easily make the payments and, and income looks good, then then go for it and just disregard his text, try and take the emotion <laughs> out because it's, it's more the emotion that pissed. Yeah, well, he pissed you off. And so it's like, <laughs> if there's no places to rent, which you said there's a shortage, then you might have to just like put your emotions in your back pocket and move on. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, we, uh, we, like, we said we were fine with it. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, hopefully that, uh, that works out. I, uh, we are at 50 minutes. You have any right. closing questions that you wanted to sneak in before the end of our show? Yeah, I want to ask you, uh, have you already started talk- talking to your kids about money? 
uh, and what, what do you, what is the one thing you would like them to understand uh, that you did not understand as a, as a child or as a young man? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, I, I don't think I understood enough about that the money doesn't necessarily create the hap. There there isn't like when you have the money, the happiness comes. Mm -hmm. I've written a whole book on this, but that maybe that's the root of of where that inspiration comes from. But really, you know, enjoying the process of making money. I can't remember the quote from Earl Schof, but he talks about, you know, when you've got an intent on making money or being curious about it. It's more about the journey and the people that you meet, uh, the learning you have to do, the trials and tribulations you have to figure out. And it when you can't do like it's something you can't do something at the gym, you can't do a certain move, and all of a sudden one day you can. Mm-hmm. That that has a certain confidence building that leads then into other areas of your life, whether it be whatever it is. It just it's a domino effect. So f- for me. That I think that was something that that worked, but I would have been a little bit more aware of psychology stuff or about managing your stress. Psychology back in the day when I was coming into university was like, oh, what are you gonna, you know, take a bachelor of psychology? That's the easy way out. That's that's but it's not. You know, now looking back, it's like we are very much so a society that is aware of the stresses aware of that there's, you know, bigger things out there as an intent and, Mm. you know, how to interact with people is super important. And and that require, if you're going to be in sales, psychology would be a major asset to understand your consumer as a business. It's like understanding that, like how, how people think you could be a better salesperson or understanding how your employer thinks. So you'd be a better employee and get a raise Mm -hmm. or, create, you know, more innovative ways to work. Maybe it's more time off or, you know, certain things. The one piece that, that I had a flash thought of is we had a, a, a very small little business running where uh, we had a bunch of fallen trees in our property and we cut them up and my son sold them to people for firewood to heat their homes. So, and again, we're talking very small numbers, but the whole interaction of the people coming to our house usually in need because they've run out of wood. Mm-hmm. They come to our house. The purpose is that we're providing them heat in their homes to live. Selling firewood seems very, oh, I just throw in the campfire when we go camping. No, these people, hardly anybody was buying it for campfire because it was in the winter. Uh-huh. So they're heating their homes. Uh, some of these people are in trailer parks that they would have to wait three weeks exactly to get their paycheck mm-hmm. or their mm-hmm. government subsidy check to come back and get the next load. And they, they had it figured out how long that this stuff would burn, what nights. So he, yeah. hearing these stories, but the, the, the highlight wasn't, again, the lumber came off land that my wife and I bought. So yes, we gave the lumber to my son who's young and he sells it, he gets the money. But the purpose was when the people pull up, you say, hello, you shake their hand, you stick your hand out. You say, thank uh-huh. you when they leave. Um, so, so that like, that's it. That's all you have to do. Sometimes he would help load it. Sometimes he would just stand there. So again, it wasn't about everything being done right. It was just about a principle that, oh, I get money. That money sat for about a year just in a a tin. He knows that it's there. We worked out how much he made. And it it isn't a lot, but it's a a lot for a five-year-old. Or he's six now. But he now has figured out that when he, he... he wants a certain toy or he wants something he has the money and he can think about it and decide if that's something he wants to, to take the money away and exchange it for the toy. And it isn't like he's going all the time and buying it, but he is starting to realize and thinking about how much he plays with it. And and he's bought it with his own money. So that, again, that's, you know, very basic. uh, and And it seems to be kind of working that, it's basic economics more than anything. Yeah, that sounds like a good, uh, it, that sounds really cute. 
and the educational. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I do have to ask. Oh, <laughs> did he ever, I mean, why didn't you just give it to people for free? It sounds like they really needed it and it cost you nothing. Well, we were probably uh, about 25% below market value on the, the okay. selling. So, you know, we would get people grinding us. We'd get tons of inquiries uh, and people wanted us to cut it certain lengths, do all, you know, all this stuff. And I would usually just respond with, Hey, this is just a simple little business that I'm doing with my son. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not in the business of custom orders. So lots of people <laughs> would just pass on it. So I guess that the, the one thing we did do for the one gentleman I mentioned uh, and his wife is we, we gave him, uh, it, we gave him 20% off for being a repeat customer. So again, um, loyal people, the one day my father was here and, and his, his truck got stuck in our driveway and this guy happened to be buying firewood that day. And so he had to pull him up the driveway and it was, you know, so you kind of have these little friendships that develop with the trials and tribulations of, of a business. And so again, we were out there that day for usually it would take 25 minutes to load a truck or 20. We were out there for like an hour and a half, two hours. And, you know, this guy was, he was just kind of a farmer kind of Joe and he was right into yeah. it and had the chains and it was just, so it's like, that's a memory. And so my son yeah. remembers that. So I think it's intentionally doing something where you've got a chance at a life memory. Yeah. That sounds really sweet. Uh-huh. Thanks Ricky. <laughs> so until next week, we'll, we'll catch you next episode. See you then. If you found this episode valuable, share it with a friend. If you found this episode super valuable, leave us a review on iTunes. It will help us continue to bring you top quality content. For more information on anything discussed on this show, visit www.servicewealth.com. That's service spelled S-E-R-V-I-S-S. Any investment topics covered on the show are not investment recommendations, and you should seek professional advice before making any investment decisions. This show was produced by Podigy Podcasts. Thanks for listening.